All right, we are live, and it is uh, lesson 23 of What About Me? And this is the last lesson in study guide number two. So study guide number three is already out there with your next lesson, and we'll talk about that at the end of class. So you did, uh, you did the second half of the uh, book of Galatians, which uh, both uh, Joshua and I were trying to avoid getting into last week because that's where, where the meat was in uh, many of Paul's comments. So I got this, uh, this lesson out to you late, but uh, I apologize for that. Deal with it. Anyone who wants to replace me is more than happy to do so. No, you're a great teacher. Don't Thank worry. you for that. Thank we you. We won't replace you. So I was quoting from the Gentile problem, which is a chapter in uh, the Galatians grafted in uh, study by Rick Spurlock. And uh, I have his son, who happens to be my son-in-law, and uh, is under the weather. But uh, quoted from him in this, in the generation before the birth of Yeshua, there was much zeal for the Judaisms of the time as well as for the temple, the center of Judaism, despite the multiple sects of Judaism that vied for position, there was near universal opinion that there was a serious problem in Judaism. And that problem? Gentiles wanted a play, wanted to play a part. Gentiles weren't Jews, and yet they flocked to the synagogue scattered throughout the world, and even to the temple in Jerusalem. We've talked before about how big the court of the Gentiles was in the day of the masters. Not being Jews was a problem before about 200 before the common era. Being a Jew was not a religious identity, but purely genetic. The only hope for man was to be a member of the covenant community. And many Gentiles recognized their need for right standing with God and desired entrance into the covenant community with Israel. The question is, how did they become members of that covenant community? And the Jews got together and determined that... Uh, the way that they should become covenant community members was to be circumcised, agree to keep both the oral and written Torah, and they would become Jews when they came out of the water of the Mikra. In fact, the term born again comes from Judaism, not from Christianity. That when they came out of the water, they would be born again or born anew as Jews. And the thought back then, and I guess we could argue even today in Orthodox Judaism, is that these non-Jews would be genetically changed mm -hmm. and be truly Jewish. In fact, um, there's a, the Midrash. Now, I know you're sick, but you've got to speak up for that thing. I'll do my best. Um, Jewish teaching, and, and there's classic exaggeration, which is oftentimes used as a teaching tool. The idea was that if you converted, then you are no longer related to your own family. Theoretically, you could marry your sister, of course, only if she converted, right? because you can't marry a non-Jew. Today, in, however, I can say that the practice, from what I've been told or I've heard, is that um, if you are married, um, you do actually, both you and your spouse have to convert. If well, you only convert, you no longer are married to right. that person. And, and you and I both have two particular families in our uh, friends and circle. Uh, that have converted to Judaism. Um, 
down in Texas, we've got a, a couple. Uh, the man is a Jew, and his wife converted to Orthodox Judaism. And because of that, they had to be remarried. And they had another wedding ceremony, and I've seen it in, on YouTube. It's, it was amazing. It was great. Uh, and then we had a couple that uh, many of us know here uh, that decided to convert to Orthodox Judaism. And after they did so, they had to get married again. And that man was relegated to the couch uh, in a friend's home for several weeks while the wedding was being prepared. And so, absolutely. Yeah, it's, it's a, a it's a big, it's a definitive change. Yeah, so their their vision of it is quite dramatic, which I think is part of the reason for um, Paul's angst here in Galatians, because one of the things I think that sometimes gets lost when you're talking about conversion. Um, first off, Galatians is a very passionate book, and so the church has traditionally interpreted it as saying that it's anti-Torah, because they have difficulty understanding. The, the rationale behind Paul's intensity. Um, if you consider the fact that um, Paul is effectively uh, arguing the idea that um, that Gentiles have a place in the world to come as Gentiles, and that it's not relegated only to Jews, and that salvation is through faith by grace and not by a man-made tradition or, anything else or even anything do. in the Torah. Um, That's right. Then it makes his uh, lessons so much stronger. If you, when you look at Romans, which I know we will eventually, right. um, his insistence on Abraham as the as the example of saving faith is highlighted particularly because he knows he's not circumcised when he does it. So his point well, when it, when his faith is counted to him as as righteousness. Right. He's not at that point circumcised. Correct. But but that does not in any way negate his Torah observance. I mean, tradition holds, and I'm sure that Paul would agree with this, that uh, Abraham kept the entire Torah, even before it was given. Right. Absolutely. So why is Paul so emphatic? Why is he so emotional? Why is this such a big book? What's the deal? When did he write it? When did he write the letter? I don't need a date. After what occurred? Right after Right after he was flogged, right? It was right after he was flogged, but what happened? He had gone to Galatia. And after he went to Galatia and non-Jews become believers, they were led astray by others. They were led astray by others. Exactly right. He had, he felt such a connection with these people that he had just, just he's just witnessed to them right that he needed to get them back on track. Exactly. So he's he's so emotionally attached to them even still at this point that it's like who as he say who has bewitched you? How did how could this happen so quickly? My goodness, I just left not long ago. And. I want you to recognize, as we walk through the apostolic scriptures chronologically, he goes to Galatia, a little time passes, and what do we get? A letter to the Galatians. We're going to see, in his next missionary journey, he goes to Thessalonica, and he goes to Corinth. Guess what we're going to get right after this? A letter to the Thessalonians, and a letter to the Corinthians, and so forth. So, 
he's following up as, uh, as we would expect him to do as one who has led people to Messiah. That's true discipleship. But I think this book also is more emotional because of the weightiness of the topic. I mean, going back to what I was saying before, this is the foundation of our faith. The, uh, the entire, um, uh, not the entire, well, kind of the entire reason, not quite the entire reason, but the, the thrust of the reason for Messiah's first coming is the underpinnings of this book. If, if conversion is necessary, is necessary then Messiah is inadequate, mm-hmm. and, if conversion, and, for and if conversion could somehow replace Messiah, then Messiah is irrelevant. Exactly. In which case, the the, uh, the critical uh, foundation piece to the belief system that um, uh, of the established by the Tanakh is shaken. Yeah. yeah so so hang on that. I want to make sure everybody understands that the Tanakh teaches that non-Jews have a place in the world to come without converting to Judaism. So if you don't understand or you don't agree with that, we need to spend some time there. I think I gave you just a couple of opportunities to see that in Deuteronomy 10 and in Deuteronomy 30. We've got circumcision talked about. And, and that's, of course, what, what the shorthand is for converting in the day and age that we're reading about. Well, in Deuteronomy 10, what is it that's being circumcised and who's doing the circumcision? Do you remember? Circumcision of the heart. It's circumcision of the heart. Exactly right. But who's, who's supposed to do that? No, no, no. no you. I am. You are. You are to circumcise your heart. And, and God promises that he will circumcise your heart. Well, Deuteronomy That's 30 right. is the next one. And who's doing the circumcising there? God. God. And what is he circumcising? Our hearts. So I think we see this same parallel in the apostolic scriptures. right? So we're to work out our salvation with fear and trembling. Who's supposed to do the work? We are. But who is it that began a good work in you and is faithful to complete it to the end? It's God. Okay? Who is it that prepared these works that we should do beforehand? It was God. Who's supposed to do the works? It's us. Right? So if you don't see a partnership in salvation between us and God, that clearly was initiated by him. Mm-hmm. And if you don't see that in the, both the Tanakh and the Apostolic Scriptures, then we need a different class. And we need to slow down. Right? So, are we good? Is everybody good on that? So, back to, to Joshua's point, Paul is, is, is just torn up. Because He's evidently, as we went through last week, he's already explained this to everybody in Galatians. And they knew it. They accepted it. They got it. They got saved. And they got the Spirit. And now, these guys are coming in on the back end and saying, yeah, Paul, but you know, he's a young guy. 
you know, a lot of zeal, maybe not a lot of knowledge there, but I mean, you need to, you need to be Jewish, right? I mean, who, who did God give the Torah to? He gave it to the Jews. Yeah, if you're not Jewish, I mean, God told us to stay away from you people because you'll infect us. Idolatry is a real bad deal. And we're not supposed to have anything to do with you so that we won't forsake our place in the world to come. So, my goodness, you don't think you've got a place in the world to come because you feel good, do you? I mean, you can, you got to be circumcised. You have to do this to be saved. That's what he's, and what he's all about. And to my, my dad's point in Galatians' study, he emphasizes one of the issues that's really at stake here for Paul is the promises to the Gentiles. Paul sees that the coming of Messiah is about bringing the Gentiles in. If you look at the prophets, it shows up. Rabbi Jeremy Capel, oh, yeah. who's a big, big fan of, of Gentiles getting curious about stuff, um, even though he would probably support conversion, um, he actually um, uh, com comments that there is a, I've mentioned this before, when Messiah is close, Jews tend to reach out to Gentiles. And he cites the story of Rahab in the book of Joshua as an example of this. Right. This idea that all of a sudden, um, that bringing Gentiles in is a sign of Messiah. So Paul is excited about this, and to, to say they have to convert to be Jews undercuts that entire argument. We've seen Gentiles converting to be Jews for a long time. That's not the, that's not the miracle here. That's, that's not right. God moving. That's right. Gentiles coming into the kingdom and being accepted as part of the people of God, that is God moving, and that's something that Paul wants. But more than that, though, I think the other issue here, and this is the secondary component, is that this speaks to the foundation of the faith element. If you can achieve righteousness with God in any way other than through Messiah Yeshua as a non-Jew, that should also apply to Jews as well. Absolutely. So Paul's point, the reason why he uses Abraham in Galatians and again in Romans, is to argue that even the Jews need to have faith in order to experience the fullness of the family of God. That's exactly right. So think about now when we were reading the Gospels. All right. So let's look at the master's interactions. With whom did he interact that didn't get, that didn't understand what Joshua just said? Who, who was he talking to that said, Born again? <laughs> you got to be born again. And this guy's a teacher of the Jews and didn't get it. Who is that? Nicodemus. He's a Pharisee. He's a wealthy man. And we know in the end he did get it because he became unclean for Passover in order to bury my master. He got it, but not without a little bit of help from the master. You don't, you don't get it? Everyone. It doesn't matter, Jew or non-Jew. You must be born from on high. You must be born through the Spirit, or you cannot be saved. In, in parlance, as the Jews were using for non-Jews, yeah, everybody's got to be born again. So, if that's the case, Abraham's an easy, easy target, right? I mean, he hasn't been circumcised. He's... You know, it's credit to him under righteousness for faith, right? I get that. What about Jacob? What about Isaac? 
What about Caleb, a non-Jew? What about Rahab? Right? We've got non-Jews. What about Esther? She's a Jew. But, right, same deal. Ruth, she's a non-Jew. Right? So, if, if you're thinking that Messiah came so that non-Jews would have a place in the world to come, you're not right. You've missed it. It's only half the story. That's exactly right. It's, it's the case that non-Jews always had a place in the world to come. What were Jews chosen by God? And that's a special calling. What were they chosen for? To be saved or what? To be a kingdom of priests, and priests are the ones who are supposed to teach. To be a light to all nations. Right? Uh, to, to teach the word of God to the people, absolutely. The Levites the same. To be a light to the nations, a conduit, not a reservoir. What else? We haven't gotten to it, obviously. The keepers of the oracles. Yes, yes. And we'll see that in Romans, right? Mm -hmm. So keepers of the oracles of God. These are the guys who he gave the Torah to, or to whom he gave the Torah, and they were to maintain it. And to that point, there's actually a midrash, or it may have been a quote from the Talmud, that says the Torah was specifically given on Mount Sinai because it was in an unknown, un unowned land. Not, not owned by anybody, exactly. Nobody right. could claim that the Torah only belonged to a single nation. That's right. Including the nation of the Jews. That's right. The nation of Israel. I think we're speaking about this on the Independence Day for Israel, 69 years, praise God, um, that Israel's been a, a nation. And um, none of us were, were alive in 1948 or 49. Um, but our parents, our forerunners, knew of a time, not all of our parents, the older guy's parents, I was just thinking, grandparents. Dad's roughly the same parents. Yeah, your parents great, or grandparents, grandparents knew of a day when there was no nation of Israel. There was in the past, but in their day there wasn't one, and one was made, right? Mm -hmm. uh, a nation was, was born in an instant, not unlike the first time. Cool. Also, it's slightly going back to Abraham. Another reason I think that's so brilliant for Paul to choose Abraham as his example, which of course is the thrust of, of chapter 3 of Galatians, is Abraham ends up becoming the ultimate Jew, if you want to use the term, sure. person of Israel. He's, he's the father. He's the father the of them, which means that he also is completely observant. One of the things I think that gets lost so much in the church's assault on circumcision based on Galatians is that Abraham was saved by faith before he was circumcised, and then God told him to be circumcised. That's right. Which he did, yes. and in circumcised obedience. his entire household and, and his, his son. son. Yeah. By the way, Abraham was like 90 years old when he circumcised yeah. himself. Not a pleasant time. No, no, older than that. He was actually closer yeah. to 100. Anyway, the point is that he was a very old man, and it was a very difficult thing, I'm sure. So, to your point, let's talk about that. Circumcision after faith is not only not unheard of, 
but in fact is the example, right? Right. So let's talk about Joshua for a second. So Joshua's wife is with child, praise God, and it's a son. Also praise God. Also praise God. So I have no doubt, we haven't talked about it yet, but I have no doubt in my mind that Joshua will be obedient to the command and will do everything in his power as a non-Jew in a circumcision led by Jews kind of world to have his son circumcised on the eighth day as that son-in-law did as well. And there he is nodding for those Definitely. of you who can't see. Definitely. So, will Joshua's, this Joshua's son have to be concerned about whether or not he should be circumcised. No. no. Because, because he's already going to be circumcised. Because the command to circumcise is given to fathers, mm -hmm. not sons. Ooh, power. Yeah. So when does the circumcision later in life come into play? For those of us who come to faith, who perhaps had not been circumcised. It was, when I was younger, a regular practice for medical reasons. It had nothing to do with faith. But for many in the world, that's not the case. So... Yeah, we were just talking to uh, uh, someone from Brazil the other day. That's right. She's, one of the issues of dealing with in their community is they have a guy there who's not he's circumcised. He's not circumcised. You know, that's so a kind of a big commitment. <laughs> we're, we're not even going to ask how anybody knows. Not relevant at this point. But I guess the question becomes, for those that are listening and may not be familiar with this, how would this come to be? So, Todd, let's say you're not circumcised, and as a non-Jew, you come to faith. Obviously, Paul is saying, if you think you need to be circumcised in order to be saved or have a place in the world to come, well, then you've missed the mark completely. But I know you, and you don't believe that. So if you've not been circumcised, and you have faith in Messiah Yeshua, you know you have a place in the world to come. You've received the Spirit as a down payment of your salvation. What, what does circumcision play in your life, then? And how do we deal with that as new believers in Messiah? for Passover we want to be circumcised. Why is that? Why would we want to be circumcised for Passover? I mean, just make up a whole well, cloth? I mean, how about Thanksgiving? Christmas? <laughs> Easter? Micah, I'd like you to be circumcised for Christmas. No. Why do you pick Passover? Why do you say that? Well, I, I, I know you know the answer. I'm just trying yeah. to, for these folks that, maybe, I mean, this could be if they're, if they grew up as Methodists or, or Catholics or whatnot, and have never heard this stuff before. I, you know, let's help them understand. How do we get from where they are, perhaps, to where we believe Paul is coming from? You're wanting to honor God by honoring his guidelines, and so you want to. So you want to be he, obedient. He says, 
that to partake in the Pesach in the lamb, you need to be circumcised. There it is. We don't eat the lamb right now, but you would still want to be prepared either way, yeah. right? So, so it's it's, yeah. it's similar to if you had a statue of Buddha in your house, okay, before coming to faith, stuff right. like that, right? Where it's like, what? It's not even a question. You there's going to be absolutely discard that sure. after realizing that that is against Torah. That's that's completely inappropriate for a believer in Messiah. Right. So therefore, you're going to make a change. And similar to Paul's point about hearing Moshe. You know, every Shabbat. I mean, it inevitably be read out loud. That's right. At some point. And well, we know for a fact that that tradition certainly these days. I mean, we've got what five, six weeks before Passover. You've got all the things that the scriptures. I mean, we've got special Sabbaths that deal with these things, right? I mean, I mean, there's a there's a temple tax. You need to make sure you pay that. There's there's the ashes of the red heifer in case you came in contact with a dead body. There's the uh, need for circumcision and so forth that come beforehand. So you bet. So I think we mentioned it last week or the week before. It, you know, if you work if you work at a strip bar, ask your dad what that is when you get home. Uh, and you become a believer in Messiah, the community that you're attending would certainly pull you aside or should pull you aside and say where you work is inappropriate for who you are and whose you are. And I think we've talked about in the past that should a man be in that position as a community, we would feel compelled to help him pay to feed his family until he found a different job. We would, we would look for things that he could do for us, for pay, in order to avoid that kind of job. Same kind of deal, right? So we want to clean up the life and become step-by-step -step more obedient. Mm -hmm. Okay. So, Galatians 4, 1 through 11, I was a little surprised uh, and if somebody could uh, pull that up so we could read it out loud. Um, Paul's, Paul's a little bit uh, stiff here. And he's, uh, I think throughout this, these three, four chapters, he's, you know, he's, he's like giving these exclamations like, I can't believe you're doing such and such. Or, you know, what, who's bewitched you? Where did, where did you get this from? kind of thing. So uh, he mentioned something in, in, in I think it's uh, verse 11 towards the end, but let's get the first 11 verses of chapter 4. Joshua, please. No, I nice say, and loud. Oh, well as done. As long as their heir, heir is a child, he does not differ at all from a slave, although he is an owner of everything. But he is under guardians and managers until the date set by the father. So also, we, while we were children, were held in bondage under the elemental things of the world. But when the fullness of the time came, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, so that he might redeem those who were under the law, that we might receive the adoption as sons. Because you are sons, God has sent forth the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. Therefore, you are no longer a slave, but a son, and if a son, then an heir through God. So let's pause right there 
And this is where Joshua has come from last week as he peeked ahead into next week's lesson and made it clear you, you're changed, right? So we've, we've got this, this multifaceted Torah that starts out as a Bidian, a, a guardian for us, and then later becomes a guide for how we should walk. The, the Torah actually has a different relationship to us, or I guess more properly, we have a different relationship to the Torah after we become believers. And then it finishes out. However, at that time, when you did not know God, you were slaves to those which by nature are no gods. But now that you have come to know God, or rather to be known by God, how is it that you turn back again to the weak and worthless elemental things, which you desire to be enslaved all over again? So these are the weak <coughs> and, and elemental things. I think he's going to give a quick example. You observe days and months and seasons and years. I fear for you that perhaps I have labored over you in vain. How about that? Days and months, months and, and seasons, seasons and, years. and years. Well, I got to tell you, um, just reading that out of context, I think the rest of my family that does not keep the Torah, my extended family, might think that that's where I'm at because, you know, I'm I'm writing them emails now. So by the way, it's the 20th day of the Omer. Yeah, I'm counting the days. And. It's just only a couple more months, and you know we're going to be here at uh, Rosh Hashanah again, blowing the shofar. Yeah, want to come down and meet us? The season, you know, we're in the. This is the season of our joy. We say at Sukkot, right? I mean, we we're doing this. So, yes, yeah, so is everybody else. Yeah, it's exactly right. <laughs> it's the Christmas season, and right after Thanksgiving, we've got all these. <laughs> All these uh, decorations and everything in the stores. Oh, wait, you can't do that on the Friday the 13th. Right. That's unlucky. I mean, come on. Yeah. There's a day. Right. Oh, it's the it's the, the, the Chinese year of the panda. That's right. That's right. Know. Good for you. Yeah. Are, are, were you born under which star? I mean, yeah, all this stuff. It, 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 the key here, here's the problem. Who's he talking to? Right. He's talking to Galatians, not... Jews. So when he sa he says that so he's talking to folks that just a few months ago were pagan. So if you read this passage, he references past tense. Formerly, when you did not know God, you were enslaved to those that by nature are not gods. Okay. So step one: enslaved by nature, those by nature are not gods. This is clearly talking about pagan idolatry because he says formerly when you did not know God. His whole issue is that the so-called Judaizers are coming in to clean up after he's been there. If he's referencing before he was there, which is what it appears to be he's talking about, he's talking about paganism. Now that you've come to know God, rather be known by God, how can you turn back again to the weak and worthless elementary so, principles of the world? So what is he equating the Judaizers with doing? Turning them back to paganism. That's it. Because they, if they, they didn't convert. Right. So if you want to get circumcised again, then you want to do stuff for salvation. Isn't that what you were doing before? That doesn't work. That's what we talked about when I was there. You're going back to these elementary things 
I thought we had you in the grad school. Now, I was concerned that some folks reading this, especially in the church, might equate this, you know, counting of days and seasons and years and so forth to be what we do. But Paul uses different phrasing for that, and we see that in, in Colossians uh, chapter 2. Now, we're going to get into that, of course, later on, but in 2.16, uh, Paul mentions uh, this kind of concept. Would you, Joshua? Thank you so much. Therefore, no one is to act as your judge in regard to food or drink or in respect to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath day. So it's not generically counting days or seasons or stuff like that. These are new moons, they're Sabbaths, they're festival days. That's what we count. Can anyone tell me why we count those? Why we keep those? Why they're important to us? Because we're instructed to follow them in the Torah. Because it's a commandment of our God. That's exactly right. We're commanded to follow them in the Torah. That's where he's coming from. Guys, they want to push you backwards. They don't, they're not telling you that, but that's what they're doing. I mean, you used to do this stuff. Well, it's no different. Well, in a way, that's exactly what they are doing. By saying that they need more, they're essentially saying you're still pagans. That's right. And in fact, in Judaism today, there is even a certain degree of encouragement to be pagan. Don't, don't, don't keep the whole Torah. That'd be a mistake. You should go ahead and still do some pagan things. There's some things definitely not in the Torah. You know, that's probably better for you. In fact, actually, you know what? Um, even within the Messianic Judaism world, there is this, this tendency to say, that's right. you know, you're not actually that, Jewish. Those are, those are signs those are for the Jews. for the Jews. You really shouldn't be doing that. In fact, actually, don't, don't pray this prayer on Friday night to mark the Sabbath. You should pray a different prayer. Right. We've got a parallel. That's that. not for you. And this whole idea, in fact, and, and furthermore, the other irony here is something that gets lost, I think, for people who are not deep in this. But what oftentimes happens is people who start the con uh, who get taken by the conversion preachers yeah. and end up not going through a conversion end up atheists yeah. or they're, pagans. Their their faith has been destroyed. Yeah. So um, many of you here um, might remember without without using names uh, that we actually had uh, several Orthodox rabbis. Uh, come here to, to teach us or to encourage us and, and whatnot. And uh, <coughs> one particular big name uh, came and spoke and taught, and it was extraordinary. The teaching was extraordinary. And, and quite frankly, he lifted us up because he was able to use Hebrew in his teaching, and yet he had just been at the Chabad house earlier that morning and was unable to do so uh, because there were... You know, most of them there were unable to, to deal with that. Uh, so he was impressed with us. And uh, at the end of his talk, he uh, milled about and uh, pressed the flesh and so forth. And uh, when he left, I walked him to his car. And the last thing he said to me as he got into the car, he shook my hand and he said, you guys are doing great. I'm very proud of you. But... Make sure you don't keep the whole Torah. I mean, do something to break the Torah. I mean, to break the, don't, uh, don't, make sure you don't keep the whole Sabbath. Make sure you, you do something to break the Sabbath every Sabbath. Now, what does that mean? 
he was concerned, as Joshua was saying, that as non-Jews, we should not be keeping the Torah because the Torah was given to the Jews, not to the non-Jews. And it's really not our place to keep the Torah and come into covenant relationship with God, but rather they've found or decided that we should keep the Noahide laws, which um, I don't know if we've got uh, time to go into it tonight, but for those listening online, Rick Spurlock's Galatians study uh, grafted in uh, at bereansonline.org is spectacular for just completely nullifying that whole concept that the, null, the Noahide laws are anything that we should be involved with. The Noahide laws, seven, five, depending on what number you're 32. talking to, 32, depending on who you're talking to and what book they're reading that day, were not even mentioned in the Mishnah. So when, when the oral law was codified in 200 of the Common Era, the Noahide laws were not even mentioned. It wasn't until after the discussions on the Mishnah, which is called the Gemara, we take the, the, we take the Mishnah, supposedly the oral law, as redacted by uh, Rabbi Yehuda Hanasi, Judah the Prince. We take the Mishnah and we put together the discussions in that particular part of the world, Babylon or Yavne in Israel, uh, pseudo-Jerusalem if you will, we take the Mishnah and the Gemara, those discussions, put them together. Those two comprise what we call the Talmud. So if we're talking about the discussions they had on the Mishnah in Babylon, this would be the Babylonian Talmud. If we're talking about the discussions they had on the Mishnah in Yavni, or what would have been Jerusalem if they were allowed to stay there, this is what we call the Jerusalem Talmud. The Jerusalem Talmud was codified in about 400 of the Common Era, and or 350, and the Babylonian Talmud in 500 of the Common Era. Both of them mention, in some way, shape, or form, some type of uh, this one blank. Noahide? Noahide laws. But the Mishnah does not even mention them. So uh, Rick points out in his study, it is completely anachronistic. It's outside time. It's, it's, it's wacko to think that in the days of the master, 200 years before the Mishnah was redacted, that there were Noahide laws that were being taught at that time. Just not the case. And, and I think that there's a, there's a verse here. Why it's like, Galatians is written for our time because if you've been in the Messianic community for very long at all, or whatever you want to call this movement, um, you run into people regularly who feel the urge to convert. And the urge is is understandable. It's sure. They're tired of being the outsiders, the weird ones. They well, want to fit in where, somewhere. Where do we fit as non-Jews who believe Messiah Yeshua and understand that he expects his people to keep the Torah? Where, where do we fit in? It's very hard to find a place. And it's, it's a no man's land, right? And people you, get tired you, of that. You cannot be joined to Judaism in any way, shape, or form in any real way. You may get lip service. You may get some, some very nice orthodox, orthodox rabbis that will give you the time of the day or even call you mishpacha, family, in some way. But there's still a rub. And if you're in the church, well, 
the Torah has no place there because they believe we're no longer under the law. So let's take a let's take a moment and talk about that. Because having gone through the book of Galatians now, we should understand what that means. What does it mean that we're not no longer under law, but under grace? Because most people in the church would would believe that that puts the Torah against grace. They're juxtaposed, they're opposites, they're against one another. How would you answer that? What's, what's, what's the, the concept here that we're dealing with when, when Paul says we're no longer under the law? Now, this is not out of Galatians. This is a, this is a quote, I believe, from Romans. Okay, We're no longer under law, we're under grace. But even what we've heard about from, from the letter to the Galatians, could he possibly be talking about the Torah? What is he talking about? Well, I'm sorry, jump in just real quick. I was going to say, yeah. you could always flip it around with your Christian friends, kind of like you do with your non-Christian friends. And um, I know you had a very famous evangelistic tool regarding the Ten Commandments, in which you asked your non-Christian friends who wanted to try to prove to themselves that they were perfect and didn't have anything wrong and they didn't have no need for a Savior, have you ever broken one of the Ten Commandments? You could list all ten of them, and you offered them, I think, $100 if they had managed to go their entire lives without violating a single one. I had to borrow that $100 bill, truth be told, from Mr. Martin, by the way, (laughs) and had to give it back to him at the end of our evangelistic opportunity. And you never found somebody. I never did. The irony is, if you flipped it around for your Christian friends, the same argument would go true in this case. So... Oh, have you ever honored your, your father and mother? <laughs> have you ever not killed someone? That's good. Wait a minute. Good. I think you're under the law. Uh-oh. That's it. You're falling to grace. <laughs> That's great. That's great. We need, uh, we need the bad test with the church folks. Yeah. Uh, Joshua is re- uh, referring to the good test that uh, uh, Scott and I would do. Uh, we, we determined that pagans are the ones that weren't going to church. This is when we're back in, in the church days. Um, pagans weren't going to church, and how can you pick pagans out of a crowd? Well, at 11 o'clock on Sunday morning, they're the ones that are out buying stuff because they're not at church. So our our community and, and church fellowship at that time decided we're, we're going to cancel church, and we're going to go rent a table at the Sweet Union Flea Market on uh, Independence Boulevard down here, and we're going to lay out tracks, and we're going to wait for these big old bikers and pagans to walk on by. And um, I guess it was because of the mouth. I was uh, chosen to be one of the guys to jump in front of these bikers and offer them a $100 bill if they could pass the good test. And it was a simple matter. If, if you could just answer a few questions, we would hand them a $100 bill. <coughs> a real one. And... Uh, they never answered correctly. They well, they answered correctly, but they never got, they um, never had it right. I mean, uh, some of them were actually proud, as I recall. Oh no, yeah, that they, <coughs> that they had to, that they had definitely not uh-huh. kept God's commandments. Uh, but that's brilliant, Joshua, that we would turn it on its ear, and and do the bad test. Well, have you have you failed to honor your? Have you ever honored your, your father and mother? Well, oops. You, you kept the you kept the fifth commandment. That was in the Torah. Have you yeah. Not, yeah. Have you have you ever not killed somebody? <laughs> okay, got you there. Number six. Yeah, you're on the hook for that one. You know, 
Do you do you desire to honor? You know that kind of deal. So you try not to covet your that's property. That's right. You or your neighbor's not, wife. Yeah. You try work hard not to take the Lord's name in vain. Oh, oh I'm sorry. that's a shame. You're under the law. You're under the law. You've fallen from grace. So what? What's Paul talking about? What What does that mean? If we're, is it the Torah that Paul is so concerned about being under, or something else? Or does the phrase mean something else entirely? Yeah. Is it a different law? Or even if it's the same law, is the phrase yeah. different than what we're thinking? Yeah. Mm -hmm. I mean, there's, there's more than one law in the apostolic writings. And of course, we've got the law of sin and death. Right. And we're no longer under that law of sin and death. We're no longer cursed by God because we've been redeemed by the blood of our master who became a curse and hung on a tree as the as the scriptures say, to become a curse for us. This is, you know what, this is good news. This, why, this is gospel. You know, we should share this with other people, I think. This is great news. That there is a way out from under the curse of the law. There is redemption available. There is life available in Messiah Yeshua. That's the good news. How you can throw the Torah in there, which, as Paul says, was convicting us of our sins, and now is showing us how we ought to live. Sounds like a good deal. It is kind of interesting if you put people on the on the spot and you ask them, especially those in the church, how do you know you're a sinner? Well, I broke the I broke the law of God. Really? What'd you do? Well, I committed adultery in my heart. Mm, that's bad. I stole things from people. Mm, yeah, that's terrible too. Yeah. You still doing that? <laughs> of course not. But hang on now. I thought you were no longer under the law, so that stuff didn't count anymore. Well, I'm morally upright. See, I think if you look at the, at the phraseology, I feel like the way that under the law is used, it seems to me to be the implication Well, we of, can't go too deep, because it's not in this book. Okay, but I mean, just saying, in, in the book of Galatians, it seems like it's used this idea of under the law is a reference almost more to um, not, not subject in the sense that you have to do it, but under the... Um, kind of like under the penalty of the law. In other words, it's like you, you either keep it all or right. you're it's, toast. It's, it's an all or nothing deal. And he, he brings that up a couple of times in 4, 5, and 6 in Galatians, right? Because he's trying to say, these guys that are, are pushing you this way aren't even doing it themselves. Right. If you want to use the law to justify yourself, you're playing pinball and the ball's already dropped right. even before you start. Because all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And how do we know we fell short? Well, the law teaches us that. Well, now we're, we're talking about a teacher again and then a convictor, right? And if, if you want to be circumcised in order to have a place in the world to come and use the law as your justification for salvation, then the law needs to be your justification for righteousness. And it, it can't happen. I mean, that's Paul's 
in, in plain English. Mm-hmm. That's Paul's deal. Right? Which is similar. I mean, he, earlier, I think in Galatians chapter 2, he mentions having died to the law, right. uh, which parallels the language that he uses in, I think it's Romans 7, talking yeah. about the woman dying to the law. Again, this is not the idea that he no longer needs to keep it. It's rather the idea that he's no longer subject to the um, to the full weight of consequences of it. It's not. It, it's not used in that fashion anymore. Right. The yeah. law that convicts me of speeding, and the law that justifies me to defend my home, is still the law. But I'm on different sides of the law when those are happening. Right. In one case. I'm an innocent party, and the law is protecting me. In another case, I'm a violator of the law and subject to the consequences of that law. And maybe another example I think of is, okay, so Juliana was in Israel uh, years ago, and she was with a friend of hers there, and a friend of hers was driving them around and uh, left their car parked for a little while, had to go run in somewhere or do something, came back out, it was a parking ticket. So they took the, when they rent, dropped the rental car back off again, um, they were concerned. Like, well, what do I do with this? How are you going to pay this? I mean, this is so crazy. The guy at the rental car place literally, like, tore the ticket up, put it in the trash can. He's like, you guys are tourists. There's no way you have to pay this ticket. Ignore it. So, in a sense, they were still subject to the law of the land. I mean, they were supposed to do what the law said. But they were not subject to the penalties of the law because they weren't a citizen Right. In the sense of that, right. in that way. So in this respect, not citizenship is probably the wrong example here because we are a citizen in God's kingdom. But right. the idea being that you're no longer subject to the penalty of the law. But this does not mean that you should drive your car up into the middle of the park and leave it there overnight. It's still you should still keep the law of the land, even though you no longer or you're not necessarily subject to the, to the consequences sure. thereof. And and we see this a lot of times in movies and television shows, right? You've got some foreigner coming in, and he's got diplomatic immunity. Right. And the whole show that week is about how this guy is doing very bad things that are breaking the law, but the police can't do anything to stop him because he has diplomatic immunity. And they're looking for some kind of way that they can get a hold of this guy when he's not in the embassy or something like that. Well, yeah, I mean, I think that's a great analogy because in that particular case, if somebody was continuing to do it because they knew that they were justified, they knew they weren't under the penalty, they, the state would find they a way. They would find <laughs> a way. They, they, you know, <laughs> or they would just kick you out. That's and right. I think that's such a great analogy for sort of how this works as well. I mean, yes, you might not be subject to the full penalty of the law, but if you are, I mean, and Hashem knows the heart, yeah. if you are deliberately going against God's word and God's commandments thinking that you are you've got a get out of jail free card then that that's a problem that and that's a problem sure. in that analogy and that's a problem in in our faith as well and, and don't which you... is the most concerning because when I mean what Paul is talking about is sort of that idea of like just doing you know th- this idea of like doing like not basically Breaking the law and thinking that you're totally justified. Sure, he he mentions it more in Romans, Romans right? Chapter and he, six, right? Yeah, and and he says, you know, don't don't think that your freedom is licensed to sin. I mean, right. if you're thinking that, we've got a bigger problem than your place in the world to come. 
well, Galatians, the whole last third of the book, I mean, the book's only six chapters. Right. Chapters five and six essentially are on that very issue. In fact, in Galatians, he even takes it, well, I'm not sure if Romans goes as far or not, but he takes it some of his strongest language that he uses by saying that if, if your life looks like this list, you're not. You're in the wrong conversation. You're not even part of the kingdom. That's right. Go start over and come back and talk That's to me exactly again. Right. That's so exactly right. So the idea is that um, rather than saying that your freedom is uh, permission to sin, the opposite is true. That's right. Your freedom obligates you now to keep the Torah, and if you consistently violate the Torah, then that's an indication that you're not really free. And if you're not free, you have no place in the world to come. Which is pretty, I mean, that's the irony. So works can't save you, but if you have no works, you're not saved. Which we read in James. That's exactly yeah. what James was yeah. saying, right? I mean, I mean, these guys are cut from the same cloth. All right, so let's, let's finish it out with this uh, last couple of lines that uh, we've got in chapter six, I think uh, 11 through 18 or so. How is it that Paul can say, circumcision is nothing and non-circumcision is nothing. Help me understand what he means by that. Where is he coming from in closing up, or uncircumcision, not non-circumcision, but uncircumcision. What, what's he saying? This is the end of the letter. Presumably those who read it should understand what he meant. What's he trying to say? Give it to me in just normal Charlotte, North Carolina English so that I can get it. I'm a simple man. Handgun, nonetheless, still, still a simple man. And you hear crickets in the background. <coughs> the key is to get everybody time, Kelly. They have to. Gears cranking. They have to have time to formulate it. Go ahead, give it a shot, brother. In this context... No, you got to speak up so in, people can hear. In, so in this context, Paul is clearly juxtaposing circumcision slash non-circumcision with a new creation. Exactly. The new creation is the most important thing. So it doesn't matter where you started from, perhaps? Right. But, but where you are now. But everybody needs to become a new creation. There it is. Beautiful. Beautiful. And he could have used, I mean, he, he used circumcision and non-circumcision because of the topic. Right. But it could have been, and he did it earlier, slave, free, Jew, non-Jew. It doesn't matter how you started we're all now one, or echad, unified in the body of Messiah. It's, it's kind of cool, too, that he, the, the, the unifying term he uses in the verse right after that is the Israel of God. Yeah, and that, it's, it's actually what I wanted to close on. We always hear about the God of Israel, but the back end of Galatians talks about the Israel of God. 
And maybe I'm making more of it, but I'm just wondering if that's not the description of us. I mean, we're struggling with who's in the coaster, who's out of the coaster, what corner of the coaster are you on? And you brought up beautifully, I think, there's, there's three groups in each group, and one's in, one's not, one's, you know, that kind of deal. And what do we call these? But the Israel of God surely is those that he has chosen and saved and who have accepted the free gift of salvation. Right. Yes, sir. Well, I find it interesting that this remark comes completely out of nowhere. From now on, let no one cause trouble for me. For I bear on my heart, my on my body the mark brand marks of Yeshua. What is that comment? Coming yeah, from? He, he sort of brings in a little personal note there, huh? Um, I've got a I've got a thought on where he's coming from, Joshua. But let me see if I don't want to throw it out there without giving anybody else. An opportunity to say where they think that's coming from. Anybody? No. Well, the way that I thought of that verse was he that he was specifically saying, if you are, if you think that I am not qualified to to bring you this gospel like that I'm, I'm making this up somehow or that like I don't know what I'm talking about I haven't really experienced like the depth of, or I'm of taking the this relationship out. right yeah this relationship with Yeshua then then I don't even want to bother with you like don't even talk to me anymore because he I think he's specifically referencing the fact that he has endured physical abuse on behalf of the name specifically the name Yeshua yeah, I, I was coming in the same way. I think it's a it's an authority um, uh, demonstration of his authority. And I think he's also contrasting it to those who came after him. Mm-hmm. Did they bear in their body? Right. Little, exactly. You know, yeah. Yeah. I've been I've been literally and physically persecuted for these things. This this faith that I have translated to you that I've mm-hmm. transmitted to you. Can these other guys say the same thing? Right. Yeah. I I definitely think. Joshua, that he's taking the whole thing personally by the end of the letter. In that he's writing them to say, I, I, I heard this. Can't be true. Is it true? Can't be true. Who's bewitched you? What are you, nuts? Did we, have you forgot already? Holy cow. And by the end of the letter, he's like, if they're attacking your salvation, they're attacking my message. And they're attacking my master in whom I've got the marks on my back because they flogged me. They beat me. They whipped me. And he just, I think, gives you a sense for how personal this is for him. And, and quite frankly, I get it, you know. Uh, I think many of us here um, have in, in some way, shape, or form discipled or tried to encourage others in their walk. And, and, and whatever way you do that, um, you take it personally. It's a, it's like this, this is a, a part of my walk is that I helped you in, in your walk. And 
if, if you start to mess up, I was like, well, did I mess up? Yep, maybe. And Paul says that. You know, maybe maybe I did this in vain. Maybe was, did I waste my time with you? I mean, right? So by the end, it's like, I didn't waste my time with you. You know how to deal with this. And these jokers that are showing up, just not cut. Good stuff. Let's see if we got anything else or other comments. Did you ask a question about the, the first verse in that, in that section that Joshua was just referring to? See with what large letters I'm writing to you. I did. I did. In ch review chapter, uh, review question number two. Why does Paul remark that he's writing with large letters? He does this again in a couple of other references. Yeah, which is that well, I mean, go back to what were we taught in the church? Well, Paul's getting so old that he can't see very well. Oh. And, and he has to write large letters so that it, so that he can see what he's writing. And he has an amanuensis yeah. who's writing for right. him most right. of the time. Right. But we already know from the timeline that's just not the case. Right. He's not that old. I was kind of looking at this kind of, as Joshua pointed out last week as a uh, chiasm in a way because he's talking. He's starting out talking about his how passionate he is about this topic. I'm writing to you with these large letters because I am so convinced. It's it's a point of emphasis. Mm. Mm. Could be. And transmitting his authority over the the, uh, the topic that he's talking to him about. Yeah. See how passionate I mm -hmm. am about this. Mm -hmm. I'm writing you with these such large letters because I'm trying to make a drive home a point to you. Could be. I mean, I do that when I'm writing. You're right, mm -hmm. you, you just get larger. I think if we look back right before that, he talks about how they cared for him so well um, and would have gouged out their eyes for him. Um, this makes a lot of commentators believe that the thorn in the side that we'll read about later that he prays three times would go away um, is actually that he's got some kind of pussy, gross-looking, bleeding, yucky, ew, <laughs> kind of eyeball. Possibly cataract, maybe? I think it had to be more than a cataract. It had to be noticeable to people. Um, yeah, cataract makes your eyes look white. They do. They do. Well, you're, he was blonded at one point. What's that? He was blonded at one point. Exactly. And I, I think that's actually just, to be quite frank with you, I think it's God's humor right. that he blinds him and then uses his eye or eyes as a tool to keep him humble um, even while he's giving him tremendous visions in the third heaven which is I mean it just plays so well some think it's a, a problem in his hip and he walks with a limp now um, but I'm personally convinced from Galatians that uh, he's got some kind of messy really bad looking eyeball which is, which is traditionally is why he's writing with large letters. Exactly. And has an amanuensis. And in Judaism, if your eye is not clear and cool and wonderful, then mm -hmm. there is some, you know, immediately, yeah, we've got some kind of moral problem that we need to deal with. So why wouldn't he take the eye out if it was pain for him not mm. be able to see mm, well, maybe was it one see. was it one eye or mm. was it both of the eyes i don't know just take an eye out while we're waiting here go ahead yeah when your finger was affected why don't we just cut it off yeah, yeah. exactly <laughs> i think 
I, th I think it wasn't that it was, you know, hanging out there like hanging on his cheek and, and not doing any good. Oh, no. I, I think mean, it's just, just, yeah, pus and nasty looking and was humbling. I don't know that cataracts would be as humbling as something that was gross. pussy and gross, <laughs> causing people to go, Ew. Ew. That's something on your face. Yeah, right? what's, is that, is that, oh, did you wash your hands? Ew, ew, yeah. But, you know, also the... Don't get that in your beard. This does, this does <laughs> not that he's saying I'm writing to you with my own hand, right. which is significant because, to your point, and I think all of his other letters, yeah. except possibly the ones to Timothy, he always has someone else... Exactly, it's uh, amanuensis, that's what that um, is. What's the other term they use for that that's not quite old and Latin-sounding? Um, <laughs> <laughs> dictation. Yeah. He's, he's, he's got a scrub. Yeah, yeah. that's yeah. writing by dictation. So in this case, he's writing it himself, which I think... Well, again, at least the last section. But at least the last section. Yeah. But his point, though, I think is, again, to emphasize that it's him who's writing it that... Um, <coughs> Either as a point of emphasis to say yeah. it's so important that I am choosing to write this, yeah. or to emphasize that you know this is not someone else writing in my name. This is what I think. This is what this I'm is saying. Right. Yeah, um, which goes back to the beginning we were talking about last week. That he's like, I'm not. I'm not just writing this for you guys. I'm writing this for the guys that didn't have right. enough chutzpah to show up while I was still there. <laughs> right. Read this to them. Yeah, and, and then smack them. And it's him. important because he, they, the whole, this is an issue of authority. Right. Part of what they're probably challenging that's him right. with that's is right. saying, we're not, I mean, Paul doesn't have the authority. He's speaking against what the rabbis are saying, so therefore he's wrong and we're right. And Paul's trying to argue against that himself. And um, I think his point, I think one of the things he says a couple of times here, I think it's so valid, is the idea that... Um, it says that they desire to have you circumcised that they may boast in your flesh. Right. It says earlier they like they've they, got notches on the belt. Yeah. If you if you um you know you they make much of you but not not to your credit they make much of you to shut you out. Right. And and I really this this seems to be the not not universal. I think it's unfair to say it's universal, but it seems to be the tragic reality. So oftentimes in conversion, well, some of these people who end up drifting into atheism and whatnot, right. it's usually disillusionment. Right. with Judaism. They try to convert and they run into wall after wall and people who shut them out. Sometimes people do finish with conversion and still never really get accepted. Right. People are told that their Jewish Hebrew names from Israel won't work because, well, the North American Jews don't have those names, but they'll always know you're a convert because you tried too hard. Yeah. You know, all those types of things. It's horrible. And, and I think that, and, that, and the irony is, my dad's theory, I think he's probably right, the Judaizers in this book probably weren't even Jews. They were probably converts because more often than not, it's the converts who are the most passionate yeah. and the mm -hmm. most intense. And um, and and so the the irony is of all people, they're probably the ones yeah. who are the most pointing the finger, kicking it the hardest. So if you want to be accepted, I guess the point I'm getting at here: if you want acceptance, it's not guaranteed in Judaism either. Even if you convert, you may not ever really get in like you want to be That's in. True. So. To summarize, again, if you're thinking that Gentiles or non-Jews have an opportunity for a place in the world to come because Yeshua came, you've missed some of the, some of the story. Yeshua had to come, no question. 
but his death on the cross and his propitiation, write that one down, $9 word, for us, his substitutionary atonement for us, was for both Jew and Gentile, not just for Gentile. And the body of believers, what did we just call it? Israel the Israel of God existed long before he came. Because we'll find out later that the Lamb of God was sacrificed from the foundation of the world, which was 4,000 years before he made a physical presence here. And if we want to learn anything from Galatians, it's that Abraham Avinu, Abraham our father, is the father of faith as a non-Jew and became circumcised afterwards, which is exactly what we expect of a non-Jew who comes to Messiah Yeshua today, what we expect, what the Torah expects. That if a non-Jew, non-circumcised man comes to Messiah late in life, that he would then be circumcised, not for a place in the world to come, but because he wants to eat the Passover and participate as part of Judaism. We see that there's many, many scriptures that speak about the Jew and the non-Jew, the ger, the stranger who dwells among you, the convert who lives among you, whatever you want to call it. So I'm, I'm feeling like my faith has firm foundation that I was not chosen to be a Jew. I was not chosen to hold on to the oracles of God and to protect them and to transmit them and to make sure that they were available for the nations. But I do know that his house was to be a house of prayer for all nations. And I'm one of the ones that can go there to pray. Because I want to. I want to serve him. And I want to be obedient. And I want to please him. Does that make sense and fit with what we've learned so far? Everybody good with that? Okay. So this should be a consistency check rather than, wow, this is really different now. No, no, no. The same gospel, the same good news that was preached to Abraham, he looked ahead, he looked forward to the master and rejoiced that his day was coming. And now, he was looking forward 2,000 years. Now we're looking back 2,000 years to exactly the same thing in the same way that Abraham did. No difference, right? Blessed are those who have hope or faith and have not seen, just like Abraham and just like us, as opposed to those who were there and saw. Right? Good. Whew. Okay, so let's talk a little timing now. Any, any other questions on Galatians, on where we're at? Everybody a Christian still? Okay. 
Nobody lost their faith while we were there. Okay. We're non-Jews. Yep. Right. Israel of God. Israel of God. Thank you very much. Yeah. Yeah. There we go. All those in the uh, IOG <laughs> on that side. <laughs> okay. Um, so next next Tuesday, uh, it'll be we'll be back in Acts. We're going to do Acts chapter 17 and most of chapter 18. Okay. And um, I think you're on the next missionary journey, and we're going to be going. Uh, instead of up into Turkey now, we're going to be going over into Greece, right? So we're going to be in Thessalonica and Philippi. We got the Philippian jailer and stuff like that, Thessalonica, and then down into Corinth and, uh, and so on. And uh, after that, of course, we saw that the Judaizers went to Galatia after Paul did, and Paul wrote a letter to the Galatians. We see that Paul's going to go to Thessalonica, and of course he's later on going to write a letter to them. So we're going to do a little bit in Acts, and then we're going to be in the book of Thessalonians, one of my favorite epistles in all of the scriptures. First Thessalonians chapter 4, we actually have the apostolic version of what we pray in the prayers every morning about God gathering his people from the four corners of the earth. We're going to read how Paul puts that to the Thessalonians who had been hoodwinked into thinking that Messiah came and they missed it. It's like, no, well, no, the bus came tw 20 minutes. I mean, we were, we were here. Sorry. You missed the bus. Yeah. Wow. That's really, that's really tough noogies for you, isn't it? Yeah. Too bad. Yeah. So, He's going to correct that. Second Thessalonians, extraordinary. I don't know if we're going to get into that uh, right away, but that one is uh, more about the end times, really near and dear to my heart. So, um, all of that to say that uh, the the study guide you're in right now—that's the last lesson in that study guide. The new study guide, part three, is already up there, ready to go for you. And uh, we've got the Acts passage. So. It's time to vote. It's a benevolent dictatorship. We take votes. So, next Tuesday, I'll be on Sanibel Island with, in Florida, the Gulf of Mexico, with my bride. So, so if we want to come there, you can come, come visit. <laughs> if the I tickets am, are free. Yeah, but you got to be <laughs> on the beach, okay? You can't come in the room, but on the beach. So, next Tuesday... We have two choices. Two choices, okay? Choice number one. Okay, I want you to think of, you know, let's make a deal. Choice number one, we meet, you've done your lesson, and Scott leads the lesson. Nice. Talking about acts, pretty cool. This is another whipping and jail thing and, yeah, all that. That's option one. Option two, you take longer to do that lesson and you actually start reading Thessalonians. Because it could be heavy. And we'll meet the following week and you get a week off. Option number two? You like option number two? <laughs> that was immediate. That was quick. That was quick. How many are voting for option two? And are looking for that dollar bill from Scott. Okay, yeah. Okay. <laughs>
right. sweet hour bill. So we're going to take next week off and really take yes. take the time and read through Thessalonians. First Thessalonians is great. Five chapters, you know, and the back end of chapter four, you should have memorized. Verse 13 through 18. 18 ends with encourage one another with these words. And yet we don't normally encourage one another with those words. But what are those words with which we should encourage one another? But that Messiah is coming back and he will gather us up from the four corners of the earth. And we will automatically be encouraged. Second day of the end. Thank you very much. So yeah, so we should be encouraging one another with those, with those words. And how that happens that the dead and Messiah are going to rise first, and then we who are alive and remaining. So uh, as we get into Revelation, you know, we'll jump back a little bit into Daniel, and we'll jump back a little bit into uh, Zechariah, and we'll jump back a little bit into Ezekiel and see you know, how really is it going to be if the dead Christ rise first. I guess, can they die again? I mean, they already died. And they've been raised. Where we who were alive and remain will be caught up together with them and not to heaven, but to Jerusalem. Yeah. Um, so we're going to talk about that. Next year in Jerusalem. Amen. So read through it. Read through it a bunch so that we're, we're real familiar with it. And, and my, my sense would be, since you've got time to get into it and read it, that we'll do more in Thessalonians in one lesson than we normally would. So that you've got you've got time to read. Okay, cool. All right. Since you're not teaching next week, go ahead and uh, close us in prayer there. Well, you've got a, an amazing remission. Uh, Father, we're uh, we're thankful for uh, the words of the apostles that you've uh, preserved for us over the years, and the opportunity to get together and, and uh, study and talk and uh, sharpen one another. Thank you also for Joseph and the time that he puts in to guide us through these, uh, through these discussions. And we pray, Father, that in the next coming weeks that we would be found faithful in uh, studying your word and be prepared and ready to, uh, to talk about the things that you would have us to, uh, uh, to come to a better understanding and grasp on. Thank you for our Messiah, Yeshua. In the name of Yeshua, Messiah. Amen. Amen. Baruch Atah, Adonai Elohim, Melech HaOlam, Asher Kedushanu B'Mitzvotah, V'Tzivanu El Sefarat HaOmer. Amen. Okay, bear with me just for a second here. Hayom Shanaim V'Esarim Yom Zerheim Shlisha Shavuot V'Yom Echad Ba'omer. That in English says, I'm waiting for it to move. Thank you very much. Oop, it moved back. Well, trying to get English here. Stand by. No English coming. There it is. Today is 22 days, which are three weeks and one day of the Omer. The compassionate one may he return for us the service of the temple to its place speedily in our days. Amen, Selah. When will that happen? When he returns. We just talked about that. 22 days. Amen. Thank almost you, gentlemen. There. Yeah, we're almost there.